Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Hear now to the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. Uh, welcome to uh, our time together. Uh, this is now the third sermon in a series of sermons I'm preaching through the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, thank you for this day that you have made. And we ask once again now in the hearing of your word, in the meditations of our hearts together, that you would be glorified and that in the hearing we would obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, so far we've seen that Paul has been making the case that there is only one gospel, the one true gospel that he received by revelation. He then went on to show that the other apostles, those recognized as the pillars of the church, all agreed with his version of the one true gospel. All agreed, including us, that there is freedom in Jesus Christ and that all or any other additions to the gospel, such as being circumcised or keeping certain dietary restrictions, are unnecessary. And in fact, such additions are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in today's reading, Paul continues to defend the truth of the gospel, speaking from his own life experiences, and he's not afraid to challenge the so-called pillars of the church. Now let me remind you, that Peter and the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem had earlier agreed with Paul, and they had even put out an official statement that circumcision and keeping to dietary laws were not required for salvation. Not only that, we know that Peter probably has already had the vision that God gave him in which he was told to eat unkosher foods. He then visited 
with a Gentile centurion Cornelius and ate with him. And he proclaimed at that time, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He knew the truth of the gospel, that it did not require any additional requirements of being Jewish. He was living like a Gentile, according to Paul. He was habitually eating bacon with his Gentile friends. Then, certain people associated with James from Jerusalem came. And apparently, they kept to the Jewish dietary laws. Now, there's nothing wrong with continuing to keep those laws. If in Christ you want to keep those laws, that's fine. If you want to get circumcised, that's fine. If you want to become a vegetarian, you know, wear a suit to church every Sunday, whatever you want to do, as long as you understand that it has nothing to do with your salvation, then go ahead. The problem is that if you continue to do those things and that you insist that it is somehow necessary or you passively suggest that it is necessary with your judgmental attitudes, then you have nullified the freedom and the grace and the work of Christ. You have re-raised the walls of separation that the cross has broken down. Paul says that Peter drew back and separated himself out of fear. To draw back is a military term to, to retreat into a sheltered place. He retreated and separated himself from what others would consider ritually or ceremoniously unclean. So without saying anything, by his actions, Peter was communicating to the Gentiles that they need to be more Jewish in order to join him. And because he's the leader, the others with him, and we're told that even Barnabas, even Barnabas, who you would think would understand, followed Peter in his hypocrisy. Last week, Peter had extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul in regard to the gospel, that nothing else was necessary for salvation. They also reached an agreement about Paul going to the Gentiles and that Peter would go to the Jews. That was not, that was not a blueprint for separate but equal churches, which you know are never equal, just separate. Peter going to the Jews and Paul going to the Gentiles was simply mission strategy. You evangelize to those folks and I'll evangelize to these folks. Right? It's one thing for us to say we're going to focus on evangelizing Asian Americans and you over there, your church, you guys go and evangelize to the, to the European Americans. That could be a good mission plan. But it's an entirely different thing to say or to think that, you know, we're only going to eat Chinese food with the Chinese Americans in our church. That might be delicious, but it's completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he is getting at. So despite their theological agreement, their lived out experience were not in keeping with that theological affirmation. As you just heard in the reading, 
And as the history of the world and as the history of the church has repeatedly shown, just because you agree on something in Jerusalem, it doesn't mean that the matter is settled once and for all in Antioch. Whether it's a policy decision from Washington or a new curriculum from the school board or in our case, just because a decision is reached in Louisville, it doesn't mean that it is settled once and for all in New Brunswick. In recent years, our denomination has made a number of rulings about ordination standards, about the definition of marriage. And I can tell you, and I know that you are aware, that these and other matters are definitely not settled once and for all. For Peter, as well as for those other false teachers that Paul is accusing in this letter, he is, it's not that they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who was crucified for our sins, who died and who was resurrected for us and for our salvation. They're in agreement about that. They even acknowledged that nothing else is necessary for salvation. But the problem is that they grew up Jewish their entire lives and they had a, they had a worldview that is being upended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew the gospel to be true and yet they were also trying to be faithful to their cultural heritage and traditions. The problem isn't that our our minds can't accept change or even to admit a new truth. It's that our hearts have a hard time changing to the implications of that truth. It's really hard to break from the traditions, religious or otherwise, the habits that you grew up with, even if you know that they're not quite right. You know, people regularly make fun of me for a variety of reasons. Um, But one thing that I get made fun of a lot is that I pound the keyboard really hard. Like when when I'm working uh, on a sermon, for example, and I'm writing, I mean, I just, I slam the keyboard. It's amazing to me that I've not broken, you know, my my laptop over the years. Um, It sounds like Like, I'm really angry, and I'm just, like, smashing the keys. My explanation is that I learned to type um, in um, eighth grade, no, no, tenth grade, and um, I learned to type on a mechanical typewriter. You guys don't know what that is. (laughs) It was this ancient device where you had to, like, take a piece of paper and, like, you know, feed it, and then you would like literally you smash these and you had it hit it with sufficient force for the ink to you know be consistent on the page, right? A few of you, thank you, John. At least, some. <laughs> right? So that's how I learned to type. And so, so I know now you know we have electricity, and I don't have to hit quite so hard, and it'll still look nice, right? I, I know that. I know that in my head. And sometimes when people are laughing at me, I'll, I'll hit my keys a little bit lighter. But as I'm working, I forget and I, I go back to the habit of like just smashing my keys. Like I, I, I can't change. I can't change. I know I don't have to do that. I know in my head I need to change. I know that I don't need to do this. But my body, it just, it just refuses to cooperate. More seriously, a number of years ago, I had a very lengthy conversation with a couple who grew up in a church Uh, that did not baptize infants. And so when they started to have babies, as many of you like to do in this church, 
I met up with them to discuss infant baptism. And I answered their concerns as best as I could. I shared with them my thoughts on infant baptism, why I thought it was, it's a good thing. I shared about how the scriptures strongly point to it, that the history of the church overwhelmingly supports it, that it makes sense theologically, and that, as Luther called it, it is this covenant of comfort that God gives to us, a reminder that our salvation is an act of God, that God is the one who rescues us, that God is the one who claims us from even before our birth, that God is able to work faith in us even before we are able to articulate or claim that faith for ourselves. Right? That, that it's, this, it's the most beautiful symbol of God's covenant with us. And a reminder that God's promises to us is not conditioned upon our response, but that it is freely given to us. And so in my understanding of God, infant baptism is a necessary outworking of the gospel of grace. Now the couple listened to me, they nodded their heads, they agreed with everything I had to say, and they said, you know, they'll, they'll think about it, and they'll discuss it, and pray about it, and get back to me. I was certain I had persuaded them. I thought I had offered a very persuasive and yet gentle argument, and they agreed with everything I had said. But they came back to me a week later and said that they decided not to go ahead with the infant baptism. I was quite disappointed, but I understood them, and I supported their decision. Because I know how hard it is to, to know something in your head and to translate the 18 inches to your heart. And to live that out in faith. I've had similar conversations about alcohol and whether or not we should use real wine or only grape juice in communion. I've had conversations about whether you can listen to secular music or only Christian music. Whether only hymns should be sung during a worship service. Whether it's okay to have new instruments like drums, God forbid. And a host of other Issues where people might know and understand in their minds that, that this is okay, and yet somehow they're not comfortable. Like something kind of nags at them in their hearts. And this is a part of our discipleship, working this out. And all that we do, all the decisions that we make, must come from a position of faith. For whatsoever is not a faith is sent to us regardless of what it might be objectively. And I just know that it is really hard sometimes to go from our heads to living it out in our daily lives. And so we can easily imagine then what was going on at the church in Antioch. There were many people who trusted Jesus, who accepted the fact that the Gentiles were equal, but who still were unable to eat non-kosher foods. They, They just struggled with it. They knew they could do that, and that perhaps they should do that for the sake of fellowship, but they just had a really hard time doing it. And so maybe in their church, in their fellowship hall, they set up two tables, one with kosher foods and one with other foods. And people would then naturally congregate toward one table or the other. But but here's the thing. The Jewish Christians could go to either table, at least in theory, But the Gentile Christians could only go to the one table. Now, in theory, they could go to both tables. But they know that if they go to the kosher table, they've made that table unkosher. 
So even though there's no sign saying Gentiles are not welcome at this table, they know that they can't really go there. And so what happened in Antioch probably is like our school cafeterias, people sat with their own cliques, and these barriers of race, of ethnicity, that Christ had broken down were being invisibly raised once again in the church. Now, I know that we do not separate ourselves by who eats pork and who doesn't. After all, I still have fellowship with my wife. (laughs) But I've noticed that most of you sit at the same spot and eat with the same people in the fellowship hall every Sunday. It's almost like you have assigned seats in the fellowship hall. I'm actually scared for newcomers who might accidentally sit in your chair, right, and get a stare down. Now, I know you're not actively keeping people out. You're not putting up signs saying, you know, you're not welcome. But it's hard for people to join your table because of these subtle signs that indicate you are not welcome. And I think this is probably the greater danger. We have all unspoken ways of keeping others out. We erect invisible barriers so that we're not going to be accused of being openly biased or prejudiced. But those we want to keep out know we're trying to keep them out. People sense it. I know that we often misread people's body language and facial expressions, but whether it's the tone of voice, a slight shift in your body position, or the lack of a genuine smile in greeting, or in a hundred other small motions, we send signals to indicate you're not really welcome here. It's what Peter did. Peter didn't make any wild declarations. He didn't tweet out racist remarks demanding separation of Gentile and Jew. He didn't blog against the Gentiles or go on a rant about the superiority of the Jews. He just withdrew quietly and sat with his friends, his Jewish friends, and only his Jewish friends. So some people might say, you know, what's the big deal? He's just sitting with his friends. He didn't say anything. He's just, you know, just doing his own thing. Well, it is a big deal because when he does that, it's, a, it's this subtle hint. It's a subtle but powerful declaration that if you're going to join my table, if you're going to be a real Christian, then you've got to become a little more Jewish. I'm not saying you have to do this, but if you do this, then, then you, you can be one of us. And doing that undermines the integrity of the gospel. But if salvation is in Christ alone, then it has this ethical implication. It means that our ethnic, our cultural identities must take second place to our singular identity, our unifying identity as Christians. It means that we sit and invite everyone to sit with us who confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So can I encourage you today to sit at a different table in the fellowship hall? Can I ask you to make an effort to ask someone you don't know very well 
to sit with you. Can I ask you to take the initiative to have a conversation with someone you don't know very well? Now, I understand when you come here on Sundays, you're glad to see your friends that you haven't seen all week and you want to catch up with them. I I get that. But I'm calling you to extend your margins just a little bit. Maybe not every week, just today. Maybe once a month. Make the intentional decision in opening and extending your circle of fellowship. Amen? Now Paul gets to the heart of the gospel, beginning with verse 16. He says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's quite a bit. What he's saying is simply is that God justifies. God is the one who makes right. God is the one who declares us right by his power through grace in faith in Jesus Christ. To justify is to put us into a right relationship with God. You experience this righteousness because of what God has done, because God is the one who has set it right. And that's what is at stake. So this is not just about food and fellowship. It's about what makes the gospel the gospel. Now, I know that sometimes, you know, the Jewish faith, when we, especially when we talk about the Pharisees, we kind of um, make fun of them or, or they're caricatured as being a, a works righteousness religion, right? That you have to do these things in order to be saved, right? That God gave them these laws and they've got to keep the laws in order to be right before God. But, but that is not really true. Judaism rests on this idea of election and its implications. They understand that God freely chose Abraham and Sarah and extended that chosenness on through the generations to the descendants that came after them through the centuries. And so in light of that election, God also gave them this law. And so keeping the law is how you respond to your already chosenness. In other words, keeping the law that is doing the works of the law, is how you maintain a proper relationship with God. Not how you get that righteousness, but how you continue in the righteousness that you have already been given in your chosenness. It's not how you're saved. It's how you continue the relationship that you already have. Is that clear? No, it's actually a quite satisfying system Because you know exactly what's right and wrong. And if you make a mistake, you know exactly how to get back to being right. Right? This is the appeal of most religions and most systems. Like You do X, Y, Z, and then you you get rewarded with X, Y, Z. So you can imagine for the early Christians who all came out of the Jewish faith, your whole life you've been told you have to live according to the law. This is how you remain faithful. This is how you honor God. This is what you do. So, okay. They're going to think, okay, so Jesus makes forgiveness possible. And so now I'm forgiven, and I'm going to continue to stay forgiven. I'm going to continue to please God by then continuing to keep the law. Right? So Jesus did that work, okay. But now... To continue in this relationship, I'm going to continue to keep the law. Because that's how 
I was raised. And Paul says, no, that's, that's not the way this is going to work. That is not the gospel. Laying aside the keeping of the law is the way now you participate and respond to God's grace in Jesus Christ. You no longer respond to God's work, God's election, God's salvation by keeping the law. You do it now in an entirely different way. To return to the law, therefore, is to rebel against God, is to say what the cross is, is not important. It's to nullify the work of the cross, to nullify what God has done for us in Christ. And so this is why Paul is so upset, because it gets at the root of the gospel and how we live out that gospel. Now, I know most of you know this. Most of you know and have proclaimed that you have been saved by faith. Many of you have had a moment when you really believed it. But probably most of you, if not all of you, you, all of you, you have at times, perhaps even now, really struggling with really believing that this is true. You find yourself slowly, almost imperceptibly perhaps, just just sliding ever so slowly toward a works righteousness. Because the gospel is really hard to believe. Maybe you are having good, quiet times, times of devotion. You go to church regularly. You tithe. You love your in-laws. And you feel great about your relationship with God and what happens. You feel confident about God's love for you, right? Because you're living the Christian life the way you think it should be lived. But then what happens is that this subtle shift takes place where you become confident of your own faithfulness, of your own discipleship, rather than wholly trusting in the work of Christ for you. Without even realizing you've unintentionally returned to the works of the law. Or maybe you've been tired with another child or you've been lazy and you haven't been reading your Bible or praying regularly and you think, I should be praying more. I should be reading the Bible more. And so you feel a little guilty. So then you lose a little bit of that confidence that God really loves you as before because you're depending on that confidence to fuel your sense of God's love for you. You depend on your performance, how well you perform your Christian disciplines, and you you, you tie that up with God's love for you. So you judge yourself for being not such a great Christian as you think you ought to be at this point in your life, and you kind of start to spiral downward. And maybe you secretly fear that God is a little unhappy with you, and maybe he will punish you for that, right? Nothing major, nothing major, just just a little. Maybe deny you that promotion. Maybe give you a little little cold, not a major sickness, just something something to kind of poke you like you're not doing right. Maybe you get a bad grade on a midterm. And so then maybe you start to think, okay, now I need to get my act together to get back in God's graces so that God will bless me once again. And Satan starts to mess with you, right? What kind of a Christian are you? 
How can you do that? And so then you, you start working your way back to God again. And you get into this, this cycle all over again. And, and we've bought in, once again, into this idea of, I've, I've got to do something to somehow earn or be worthy of the righteousness of God. And Paul says, no, that, that's the whole point of the gospel. That's why I preach the gospel every week. Why you and I need to hear the gospel every week. Why I need to hear the gospel every week. To be reminded that it is God who justifies and God alone. And, and you have to shout back, your, back at yourself every day. Every day you have to shout to yourself that it is the God who justifies that my hope my only hope is built on Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's sinking sand. Everything else. You are justified by faith in Christ and by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's singular vision of who we are and what we are in God. The Christian life is not about preparing a resume for God to approve. It's not preparing an application to get into heaven. It's not about listing your spiritual accomplishments, how early you get up to go to church and how many hours you've prayed or given to missions or, or anything like that. You are justified, made righteous by God, declared forgiven. Nothing else. That is the good news. That is the gospel that Paul is preaching. And that is the one true gospel that I have to preach every week. Let no one rob you of that true gospel. And so that's why Paul is right to challenge Peter. Because the gospel is at stake. It's not just about food. Peter needed to be corrected, to be rebuked, and to repent. You know, he, he's fortunate that he has a colleague, a friend, a church community that will speak the truth into his life. Especially as someone in a position of leadership, Peter needed someone to tell him, hey, you're wrong. You're not doing this right. You know, Paul doesn't tell us the result of this conversation. He doesn't tell us how Peter responded to his rebuke. Which suggests to me that it didn't end well for Paul. I think, I think if Peter had re- repented, Paul would have wrote that down. He would have told us, I won. <laughs> but, and, and knowing Peter's personality, it's, I, I doubt he backed down or apologized, at least not immediately. You know, the others probably took Peter's side because you know, he's the established leader. And, and Paul is the one who probably got left out of this uh, entire confrontation. But maybe, just maybe... You know, because of the gospel, maybe Peter told the others, hey guys, Paul's right. I was wrong. I'm really sorry about what I did. And the others forgive him, and they all go to McDonald's Monday to get some McRibs. Now, quite a few people look at this incident, this confrontation, as a model for how leaders ought to be rebuked publicly. This is what's happening today, right? Think about all the anonymous, thoughtless, public shaming that goes on in social media and the internet. 
But is this really the way to affect positive change? Is this how we ought to treat one another? You know, I think Paul, as he looks back on this incident, I think he would say, you know, I'm glad I confronted Peter. I was right to do that because the gospel was at stake and I've got to speak up for the gospel. But I think he would also look back and regret the manner in which he handled it. You know, because what's really funny is because just a few chapters later, in chapter 6, you know what Paul writes? He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Yeah, Paul. You ought to exercise a little more pastoral care to have restored Peter in a spirit of gentleness, right? Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 18, right? If your brother sins, you know, go to him privately. And if he listens, then you've won him. If he doesn't listen, then bring a few more people privately. And then go to the church, right? I think Paul would agree that, yeah, you know what? Looking back, I probably didn't handle it best. Maybe taking him aside would have been the more loving, more spiritual way of handling it. So maybe there's someone you need to speak the truth to this week. And maybe you can do it in a spirit of gentleness instead of calling them out publicly. I think we especially need the spirit of gentleness in our day and age with such short-temperedness and such anger all around us. And Paul reminds us that discipleship, maturity, it's an ongoing process. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me, Christ enables me, Christ empowers me, but it doesn't mean that I'm instantaneously mature and perfected. It takes time. It's a, it's a new life that I have to grow into. You know, and, and Peter's a great example. Think about Peter's life. He spent three years, 24-7, being personally discipled and loved by Jesus Christ. Think about that. He got to be with Jesus every day. Every day. I mean, you can't ask for anything better, right? In terms of discipleship, in terms of your life, of anything. But what does he do? He's able, on the one hand, to make these great confessions that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the very next minute, Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. Right? He knows Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's a witness to the resurrection. He's certain of Christ's resurrection and of his own salvation. In the book of Acts, he's, he preaches justification by faith in Jesus Christ and thousands come to saving faith. He's cured illnesses. He's performed miracles. He's a pillar of the church. But he's not immune to peer pressure. He's not immune to the pull of his past and his traditions. He has to stumble and grow into maturity just like the rest of us. I hope that's an encouragement to you. That it takes time. And that you'll be patient with yourself. And that you'll be patient with others. This is the gospel and the new life in Jesus Christ. It's a fundamental shift in our position that is accomplished by God 
through Jesus Christ on the cross. That God moves us from unjust and unrighteousness to a position of justification and righteousness. And now, because of that, Christ is in us, the Spirit of God lives in us, and we can live now into the new life, into this new righteousness that God has made possible for us. Now, we're going to see some more of the implications in the coming weeks, but today, we have been given the clarity about what the gospel is, and we are called to have courage to speak the truth, to speak the truth in a spirit of gentleness, so that we do not undermine the gospel not only by our words but by our subtle actions let's pray together God we're thankful for the gospel we're thankful for the work that you have completed for us in Jesus Christ and so God help us to, to, to know the gospel to believe the gospel, and to live out the gospel. Help us to measure our faith that we do not exclude others from your table, that we speak the truth in gentleness. God, help us to live in such a way that others will see the gospel. Before we say a word, let others see that we are living out the gospel because your spirit lives in us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.